following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. If you've been here with us for the past few weeks, we're actually in the middle of, uh, close to the end of, next week I think Pastor Steve will be uh, finishing out our little mini-series here on the Lord's Prayer. And as we've been doing the past several weeks, I want to invite you all now to uh, let's begin our message today um, by praying this prayer together uh, this morning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray for the word this morning. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for this time that we get in your word. We thank you for the prayer that you teach us to pray, um, not only as a model, but even as as a prayer we ought to um, recite and pray for ourselves often, regularly, um, to learn um, the heart that you show behind this prayer. So, Father, as we dig into what seems like a a short line, uh, just one of five lines in this relatively short prayer, how do we pray that you would give us hearts that are open to uh, receive from your word today, open to the work of the Spirit in us, open to to, um, all the ways that you want to teach us what it actually means for us to seek forgiveness of our debts from you and to forgive others their debts against us. So we pray and lift up this time to you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, so this past uh, several weeks, as I was preparing this message on forgiving, forgive us our debts, um, <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you guys, uh, I realized something about myself that I'm not very good at forgiving <laughs> because um, I, I just noticed over and over and over again, this happens so often when we're preparing messages that that, you know, you just get struck with all these chances to forgive and then kept on feeling like I was failing at it. And maybe it was just God giving me more reasons for feeling convicted myself as I'm preaching this today. And I also realized that my kids are actually much, much better than I am at forgiving. I don't know how many of you guys that have kids and are fa- have families have realized that kids are actually really good about just letting things go and uh, taking an apology and, and running with it and being okay. And I'm really, really not. And um, so this morning, I'm, I'm asking you all with me um, to kind of reflect on what it means for us to be people who are forgiven and to forgive and where those sticking points are, what makes it so difficult for us at times to be people that would forgive one another. You know, it's interesting in this prayer, as Jesus teaches us about forgiveness, it says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And I think for a really, really long time growing up, you know, we all hear different versions of this prayer. And I think this line in particular gets translated in multiple ways, even in our own Bibles, in the Gospel of Luke. It says it differently. It says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And some churches might recite this prayer and say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's interesting that in the Gospel of Matthew, that he says, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors, and uses this sort of like monetary economic language here. What does it mean for us to forgive debts? And 
how can we understand what Matthew and what God, through this gospel, is trying to communicate to us about our need for forgiveness by using this metaphor of debt? Well, in the first century, in Jewish uh, uh, culture, this idea of debt looked a little bit different than what it does today. So I'm just going to try to give us like a brief, you know, like couple of points that might help us to wrap our minds a little bit more around um, what Jesus might have been talking about here with debt, okay? So the first thing is that debt, kind of like it is today, maybe, in, in a lot of cases, doesn't always mean, or doesn't even usually mean, that you did something wrong, right? Like, when you fall into debt, a lot of times that means you borrowed money from somebody, and back in that agrarian society, that could have meant that your crops just were really poor one year. It could have meant that you inherited a small amount of land, it could have meant that maybe you got ill or you were, you know, like uh, injured in some way. And so you couldn't work your land. And so you had to borrow money from somebody to make it work. Or maybe you had a fire in your field, whatever the case may be. It doesn't always mean that you were like morally culpable for being in debt. And actually, um, as, even as scripture uses this metaphor of debt for sin, or debt as a, um, something that needs to be repaid, we might think of debt as in relation to um, Israel being enslaved in, in Egypt and how they were enslaved there and that idea of them being brought out of slavery and brought out of that indebtedness to Egypt. But Israel didn't actually do anything wrong to become enslaved in Egypt. I, I hope my youth group students know this and I thought about quizzing you guys, but I was afraid what I'm at here. So we've been talking uh, the last couple of months a lot about the book of Joshua, and I've been trying to go over and over and over again about the story of the Old Testament and saying, like, what happened between Genesis and Exodus that caused Israel to be enslaved in Egypt? And it was like, well, they were in really good graces in Egypt when Joseph was around, and then a couple of generations later, there was a new pharaoh, and then they weren't. And then they became a threat, and then they were enslaved. And so it wasn't because Israel necessarily did anything wrong. It's just that they were enslaved and indebted now. And so even though they didn't have any moral culpability there, it still meant that they felt the effects of that. Even in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 9, there's a man born blind, and people come to Jesus and say, like, whose fault was this that he was born blind, right? And Jesus, of course, we know, tells them that neither it was not his fault nor his parents' fault, but that he was blind so that God might be glorified through it. So indebtedness here doesn't always mean that somebody did something wrong. The second thing that I want us to understand is that indebtedness, though, had really, really harsh consequences. Actually, it was probably the number one reason for people to be put into prison in their society. That when you owed a debt, a lot of times you were thrown into prison, and the purpose of that incarceration was not necessarily just punitive, but it was also like coercive. It was meant to uh, make it so that um, if you had any money that was being hidden somewhere, that you would be pushed to pay that money back that you owed, right? Like today, we might have a lot of electronic trace, traceability for our funds. But back then, it was like you said what you had, and then that was it, and nobody knew whether that was true or not. And so if you were thrown in prison, even being physically tortured, that the idea was that you would be pushed to the point where you would give back anything that you actually owned. Even uh, relatives would have been pushed to say, well, even if it wasn't my, was my debt, that if my relative is being thrown in prison and they've been in prison for a long time or they're being tortured, that even relatives would come to their aid and pay the debt for them. In extreme cases, people would even be thrown into or put into debt slavery. 
where they were um, not able to pay. And instead of paying the amount that they owed, that they would actually sell themselves or even family members, or their entire family might be sold into slavery as a way of paying their debt. And to be fair, we also want to keep in mind that this slavery is not the same as American slave that we would think of from several centuries ago. But this is really a, a, a way that they felt like this is the only way through my labor that I'll pay back the money that I owe. Okay? So with that framework of debt in mind, as we come to this line in the prayer, we say, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I want to begin our message today by saying, what is our debt to God? What do we actually owe to God? If debt is meant to be a metaphor for sin, then since our sin is a failure to love God and to love others, and when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And so our debt to God must be some sort of a debt of love, some sort of a debt of, uh, of failing to honor him as king. It could be also a failure to trust and obey him because over and over again, Jesus also taught us that our, our way of displaying or to, to live out our love to him was through obedience. And so we have a debt of faithfulness to him. In, in Micah chapter 6, verse 8 in the Old Testament, some scholars say that this is kind of the pinnacle of the entire Old Testament here. And the prophet writes, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. What do we owe to God? To do justice and love kindness, to walk humbly with him. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus again affirms that same sentiment when he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So again, I ask you this morning, what is your debt to God? And I'm not just talking in generalities, but I'm asking each of you to look into your own heart and say, what really is the debt that I owe? For me, I say one of the main ways that I owe to God often is in my failure to trust him. I know that can seem very vague and, and broad, but I mean, when I fail to trust him for like my financial security, for example, that it makes it really hard for me to tithe. It makes it so that I try to fill my schedule more with work so that I can pad our bank account a little bit more. When I fail to trust his love and care for me, that he actually hears my prayers is when I fail to pray. Or when I only pray about things that I think are really religious. When I fail to trust his love for my kids, it's when I actually find that I get the most angry with them because I feel like I need to fix them. I need to make them the kind of children and the kind of adults one day that they're supposed to be. That's one of my major debts to God, and I add to it daily. Before we talk about seeking forgiveness from God, I want to ask you again, what is your debt to him? When we conceive of our sin as a debt to be repaid, the natural question that we ask when we think about this debt that we owe God is, well then, how do I repay it? How can I make this better? How can I get rid of that debt out from under it? And I think the reason why we're always so quick to ask that question is because debts put a strain on our relationships. 
They cause estrangement. They could cause in that society people to go from being friends or neighbors, like let's say I borrowed some money from a neighbor of mine because I came out of financially hard times, that if I couldn't repay that debt, that I could become their slave. Going from friends and neighbors to becoming master slaves. Why do people today even say that you shouldn't mix business and family? Because when you owe money even to a family member, that it causes undue relational strain. Why do we as a society prefer not to let friends borrow large sums of money from us or even to ask friends to allow us to borrow large sums of money? Because that indebtedness hangs over our head in a way that is so unhealthy. And so that strain that we feel, the stress that we feel from being in debt causes us to frantically search out a solution and say like, well, how do I get out from under this? How can I repay God then if you're telling me that I'm indebted to him? And what is our solution most of the time? With God, we often would say things like, well, if I'm indebted to him because I fail to trust him with my money, then I need to tithe more. I need to work less. I need to pray more. I need to read my Bible more often. I need to work harder and be better to my kids, be more forgiving. We begin to see in this paradigm God as this accountant who keeps track of all of our failures and our successes. And he has this cosmic tally where we hope that we come out on the right side. And actually, when I was a kid, um, my mother was a great, great woman. She was one of my, um, my foremost uh, you know, models of faith. But as I remember our childhood, one of the things that so distinct in my mind that I was like, man, my mom kind of got the gospel kind of wrong here was that I remember so distinctly that whenever we did things that were wrong, she would warn us in Korea and she'd say like, if you keep doing that, then God's going to give you another X in heaven. <laughs> and I was like, what? I don't want an X. He's like, yeah, you better do the right thing. So he gives you circles instead, right? And it sounds weird in English, but it's like giving you a star versus like a, a, an F, right? And she would always say that, like, okay, like, if you keep doing that, you're going to get more Xs. Don't do that. And if you do good things, then you'll get these circles that are like, win you credit in God's eye somehow. Kind of like these jars up here, right? Like, keep on filling that happy face jar and don't add more to the sad face. And so we can easily start to think of God this way where we say, okay, well, if I owe him something, I better repay him. I better do something to make it better. And while the debt remains, there are only two ways to get rid of the debt. And one of them is to repay the debt, right? But there is a second way. What happens when that person who owes the money isn't able to pay down the debt? What are the other options? And that other option is that that debt can be canceled, and in this prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts. He's not saying, because we owe God, pray to God that you will be better at repaying your debt. He says, in light of our debts, we ought to pray to God for him to forgive those debts. And debt forgiveness is exactly what it sounds like. It means that that debt gets canceled. You no longer owe that sum. And this is also true, this idea of uh, debt forgiveness coming out comes out in another prominent passage that pictures our sin as debt in Matthew chapter 18. Verses 21 to 27, it says, Then Peter came up to him and said, 
Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now in this parable that Jesus is teaching, we don't know why the servant is in debt, but actually that debt is a huge astronomical sum. Actually, scholars think that that word talent was probably the largest like, denomination of money that they had. And some people think that it could have been somewhere around 20 years worth of wages. So for this guy to have accrued 10,000 talents worth of debt with his master, it's pretty clear why he could not repay that. We don't even know, actually, not just why the servant is in debt, but whether it was his fault or not. Remember earlier we were saying that it's not always something that you're morally culpable for. But what we do know is that no matter what the cause was, then now he still is responsible for paying back that debt, and he can't. And so he's put at the mercy of his master, asking the master, please have mercy on me, forgive me. But you know what? When the master turns to him and offers him the forgiveness, it doesn't actually mean that the debt just like disappears and nobody paid it and it's just fine. It just vanishes into the universe somewhere. That actually means that this master had somehow lent this servant 10,000 talents worth of money at some point, and now he was going to eat that cost. If the person who owed 10,000 talents had that debt canceled, that means that the person who cancels the debt is out 10,000 talents. The one who was owed the debt is now the one who ends up paying the debt. And so maybe the point of this debt metaphor for sin is not about seeing God as this accountant where we owe him some things and we need to repay him those things, but actually is about the fact that God is utterly committed to reconciling our relationship with him and he expresses that commitment through his ridiculously generous forgiveness of our debts. See, when we picture our sin as debt, that the point is not to wrestle with the debt and how I repay it, but just to say, look, this is amount that you owe and you can't repay it. And so you must, like this slave, this servant, rest in the mercy of your master. If our minds turn to how do I pay it back, then we've missed the point. See, it's kind of like a mother who's trying to tell her son how much she loves him, no matter what he does, that she will always love him. So she points to all the things that she's done for him as evidence and saying, like, look, look at how I, 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 I carried you in my labor. My whole body has been transformed because of this pregnancy and giving birth and breastfeeding. And then I've bought you all these toys and clothes as a kid, and I cooked you all these meals, and I've driven you everywhere, and I've stayed up late at night waiting for you. Wondering where you are while you're out hanging out with your friends, too busy to send me a text or a give me a call, hitting a little close to home, <laughs> stressing out over all the things that you stress out about, all of your school stresses, your relational stresses, wondering how you're feeling about it all, 
recognizing that maybe for some of our teenage parents, you don't even really want me to be the one that's always talking to you about these things. And imagine that in that conversation that that teenage boy pulls out his wallet and says, all right, mom, then how do we settle? How much do I owe you? He'd be missing the point, wouldn't he? That when Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts, he's not doing it to remind us of our guilt. He's doing it to remind us of the Father's commitment to his relationship with us, of the forgiveness that is available to us. He's not this strict accountant who demands repayment, but a loving Father who generously forgives. Pastor and author Sam Storms writes, but true forgiveness pursues relationship and restoration. True forgiveness is not satisfied with simply canceling the debt. It longs to love again. God is ready and willing to forgive because of his commitment to the relationship with us. So he doesn't just relieve our guilt or wipe our slate clean for the moment. That's not the kind of forgiveness we're talking about. We're talking about a forgiveness where the goal is restoration and reconciliation and real restored relationship. In that same article, Pastor Storms writes, So what is forgiveness? It is deciding to live with the painful consequences of another person's sin. Just as the master had to eat that cost of 10,000 talents himself, that forgiving another means not that that just disappears into the universe, but that God himself bears the pain that our sins cause him and doesn't force us to repay that debt. That's the forgiveness of God. And isn't that exactly what Jesus demonstrated for us on the cross? Was that utter commitment to his people, the willingness to bear our consequences, to bear the pain of what sin wrought in this world? Is that not the good news of the gospel? We're no longer responsible for paying that debt that we could never afford to pay, but that God loves and accepts us just as we are and forgives us so that we might be restored to him in real relationship. I've got two little kids at home that are five and three, and I was looking for this book and I couldn't find it. I, I wanted to bring it in as a, uh, as a little um, illustration here. And I was asking them to look for it. Like, my son was asking me, like, why do you need the book? Is everyone bringing this book? Are you guys going to read it together? I was like, no, that's not what's happening here. It's a book called I Love You, Stinky Face by Lisa McCourt. I don't know how many of y'all parents have read this, or adults who aren't parents, I guess, if you wanted to read children's books, that's cool too. But it says, in this book, there's this mom who's about to put her kid to bed, and she's trying to uh, uh, reaffirm for her child how much she loves him, and she tells him, like, I love you. And the kid keeps pushing back and saying, well, but mom, what if I was like this, then would you still love me? And so one of those pages, it says, but mama, but mama, what if I were an alligator? with big, sharp teeth that could bite your hand off. And the mom replies, I'd buy you a bigger toothbrush. And if your throat hurt, I'd look inside your huge mouth and I'd tell you, I love you, my dangerous alligator. The kid goes, but mama, but mama, what if I were a super smelly skunk and I smelled so bad that my name was Stinky Face? Then I'd pluck, plunk you into a bubble bath 
But if you still smelled stinky, I wouldn't mind. I'd whisper in your ear, I love your stinky face. The child goes on and on, and whether he's a one-eyed monster or a green alien who eats bugs or a big hairy ape or a slimy swamp monster, the mom keeps reassuring her son that no matter who he is, what he does, that she'll love him. And of course, the book ends with the son finally just before he goes to bed without another hypothetical saying, I love you, mama. She turns to him and says, and I love you, my wonderful child. See, whatever mess that we've made or whatever debt that we've amassed, whatever monster we may have become, I think our God is also saying to us over and over and over again that he will take the danger of putting his head in our big mouth full of sharp teeth or of having to come up close with a stinky skunk of having to sit and deal with the painful consequences of our sins. And just like this child at the end of that book finally responds, I love you, Mama, I think that's the only appropriate response that we all can have to the forgiveness and the love that our Father gives to us. Many of you will have recognized that the parable that we were reading earlier in, in the book of Matthew, where the, or where the servant was forgiven, 10,000 talents, was not actually read in its entirety. There's another half to it. In fact, this parable is known as the parable of the unforgiving servant, not the parable of the forgiving master. And we haven't even gotten to the unforgiving servant part yet, so we're going to turn back to Matthew 18 and it says, But when that same servant, after being forgiven this massive debt, went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And in this parable, we see that God's expectation is that this servant who was forgiven would also turn, in turn become the kind of person who would forgive the debts of others. You see, because God's forgiveness to us is not transactional, but it's supposed to be transformational. It's not just that he wipes our slate clean, but it's supposed to be a forgiveness that changes who we are. And you might read the latter half of this parable and say, like, wait a minute, this doesn't sound like a God who's just going to take every one of my uh, sins and, and deal with the consequences himself. But when we look at it through a transactional lens, it could sound like we need to be the ones that forgive others first and we need to keep our end of the bargain in order for us to receive from God, right? Tit for tat, quid pro quo. But when we see God's forgiveness as transformational, we, re we realize in this parable that the forgiveness that was received by the servant, if it truly was received as forgiveness, as that expression of the love, the generous love of God, 
would have transformed this servant into one who would be willing to forgive others. The master didn't tell the servant that he had to forgive others first before he'd be forgiven. The master didn't even tell the servant after he was forgiven, you better go, go out and do the same to others. Because the assumption here, I think, is that when you've experienced that kind of forgiveness and mercy, then it will change you and the relationships that you have with others so that you will offer that same mercy. When we experience God's commitment to his relationship with us, his willingness to pay the costs for our sake, that we are then free to be committed in our relationships with others, to be willing to pay the costs for their sakes, to be willing to accept them with all of their ugliness. In the latter half of this line in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And the two go hand in hand, just like loving God and loving our neighbor. In Luke chapter 7, there's a familiar story for us where Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus to dine at his house. And while he's dining at his house, there's a woman of the city, it says, who was a sinner, who comes and anoints Jesus' feet, washing his feet with this alabaster flask of ointment that she breaks for him, wiping his feet with her hair, weeping, wetting his feet with her tears. And as this is going on, Jesus turns to Simon the Pharisee, who's watching this with judgmental eyes. And he says this in verse 41, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Notice how, again, debt being used as a metaphor for sin and the debt being forgiven. And he said to uh, Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Again, here, as Jesus is telling this parable to Simon, he plainly recognizes, and we as a readers can easily agree with him, that the one who has forgiven much, who has been forgiven much, will love much. God's forgiveness is meant to be transformational the way that it was for this woman. It teaches us to love. And my guess is that for a lot of us in this room, like I was saying at the beginning, as I realized for myself that forgiveness is really, really hard. Loving and accepting others as they are is really, really hard. But when we pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, in this prayer, we recognize that our starting point is not that we need to say, okay, how can I change so that I can be a better forgiver? What can I do better here? That the starting point is to turn to God and say, God, I need to experience that forgiveness from you. I need that transformational forgiveness in my life. 
And we trust that when we experience his forgiveness that he offers to us, that it will transform our hearts to become more like his so that we can extend that same grace to others. One of the strange things that I thought about this week as I was preparing this was that Matthew, of all the disciples, was the one who wrote this gospel. And he's the one who talks about our sin as debt and in the Lord's Prayer records it as forgive us our debts. And remember, Matthew was a tax collector. Someone who probably, like uh, Zacchaeus, another tax collector we see in the Gospel of Luke, would have owed a lot of people a lot of money for wrongs that he had done. It made me wonder this week if the reason why he insisted on keeping this verbiage of forgive us our debts was that Matthew was someone who had a massive debt that was canceled by his Lord. My wife Connie and I are very, very different that may be one of the strengths of our marriage because we can, you know, cover over each other's weaknesses, but it also is what causes the most stress and our strain in our marriage as well. I'll close with this illustration. And everyone deals with these fights and their anger differently. And my tendency, I'll confess to all of you, is to give a cold shoulder. <laughs> and maybe that doesn't seem that bad, but I mean, I give a cold shoulder for like days. And I'm not proud of this, but sometimes, if I'm really being honest, it can go on for weeks where we just pass each other in the hall of our house, our little old condo, doesn't even have a lot of room, almost hiding from one another. And as I expend all this energy of avoiding my wife, I keep on playing over and over again in my mind the fight that we had and all the reasons why I'm angry with her and all the reasons why she had wronged me and... And I complain to God, and I grumble in my heart. And things just spiral down and down and down. And sometimes I'll reach out to a close friend, or when I was in a journey group program a couple of years ago, then I would tell my journey group guys about the fight that we had had and the way that I'm processing and, and how long it had been. And something like, dude, like, you just need to like, go back and make amends. Like, this is going on too long. And I'll share with them. Or, and then one day, you know, like maybe a week Sometimes a few days, sometimes a couple weeks, like I said. I'd come back and I'd be like, things are better now. <laughs> it's like, well, what changed? And as this pattern happened a few times, I realized that, well, I don't know what changed. I don't know when it happened exactly. But after I saw it happen a few times, I realized, you know, when I'm sitting by myself and I don't have anybody else to talk to in my house, that I'm just venting to God and complaining and arguing with him, that somewhere along the way, the God gets the grip of my mind and, and reminds me somehow of some of the things that I had done that were wrong, some of the part that I played in that fight, some of the ways that I had hurt my wife. And usually at first it begins with defensiveness on my part, but at some point, the Holy Spirit starts to remind me that despite all of my failures, that God has forgiven me. Reminds me of the forgiveness that even my wife has offered to me over and over and over again in our relationship. And in that process, it softens my heart to be able to start to forgive and to ask forgiveness from Connie. 
And it usually doesn't happen suddenly, but this slow process of walking through, what is this debt that I owe to my father? How is it that he responds and receives me? What is his commitment to me? And how then am I being changed and challenged to be committed to others? And my hope and prayer for all of us this afternoon is that we also would experience this generous forgiveness of our debts from our God that transform us into people who can generously forgive others their debts as well. Let me go ahead and pray for us today. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are debtors to us. Lord, we recognize before you right now that it's hard for us to forgive others. It's hard sometimes for us to even admit our need for forgiveness from you. But God, we pray that as we uh, wrestle with um, this request for forgiveness, that in it, that our focus wouldn't lie on the debt that we owe, but it lie in the greater grace and forgiveness that you offer to your people, your commitment to us, your willingness to pay the cost on our behalf. Father, we pray that as a church, that we'd become a church that is growing in our ability to forgive. Even as we talked about last week, this isn't meant to be a prayer that we pray once and we're done with. Just as we ask for our daily bread, Lord, we're needing to come to you and ask daily for forgiveness as well. Father, we pray that it would be a forgiveness that we receive from you that would genuinely be transforming our hearts and our lives so that we would look a little bit more like our master each and every day. Father, if there are people in this room who are struggling to forgive somebody, we pray for your spirit's soft and gentle prodding and prompting. Lord, that you, you don't guilt us into it, but Lord, that you invite us to emulate you, to image you into this world by offering that forgiveness to others. Father, for those of us who have lived, who have come into thinking that we are righteous on our own, that we've somehow repaid our debt to you, Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts that would recognize our need for your forgiveness. So, Father, we lift up all these things to you. We thank you so much for the love and the grace that you give to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.